Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Be looking at verses 7 to 12. Just a final reminder that following the service, uh, prayer and care team leaders will be meeting in Upper Zwingli. We'll hear now the word of the Lord. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with his riches, so that he never asked, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil, For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Father, we ask now that your spirit would enlighten our minds as you Teach us and speak to us through your word in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let's remember in the context here what we're doing, or what Solomon, that is, is doing. He's reexamining his earlier premise uh, that life is monotonous. Uh, He began to see now. He was in his ivory tower and he was evaluating these things philosophically, but now he's down where the real people are and he's in the midst of real situations and he had to face up to some real hard facts. He began to see, saw something above man in the beginning of chapter 3, a God who was in control of time and who balanced life's experiences. He saw something within man that linked him to God, eternity in the heart. That was also in chapter 3. And he saw something ahead of man, the certainty of death and the the coming of judgment at the end of chapter 3. And then in chapter 4, he saw something around man, the problems and the burdens of life. And that's what we've been looking at over the last few weeks. We saw the oppressed They have no comforter. We saw that the envier had no contentment. And now we meet a man who has no companion. And so there's no comforter, no contentment, and now no companion. Look at verse 7, the beginning of verse 8. Again, I saw a vanity under the sun. One person has no other. And so now what happens here is loneliness is added to the list of the problems and the frustrations of life that Solomon has discovered so far. We had injustice, we had uh, oppression, we had poverty, we had envy, and now what we have is being alone. Uh, There's this toiling in life alone. And so that's what we're going to be looking at. This morning. Now, the verses themselves are easily outlined. The seven and eight go together, and then they're contrasted with verses nine to 12, as we're going to see in a moment. And so, first, let's look at verse seven, eight. Here we have described lonely greed. Again, verse seven I saw vanity under the sun. One person has no other, 
either son or brother, yet there is no end to his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Now, I've often mentioned Dr. Riken, and I will be quoting Dr. Riken uh, soon enough, but another commentator that's uh, very helpful is Warren Wearsby. I don't know if you've heard of him, but this is what he points out. He says, in the beginning of chapter four, we had this industrious man who was motivated by competition, the person who wanted to keep up with the Joneses, and he, he was in the midst of the rat race. He thought having more than his neighbor would bring him peace and happiness. Uh, but he had no leisure time to enjoy life. That was verse 4, the industrious man. And then we had the idle man. This was the guy that saw the Joneses and said, I'll never be able to keep up. And he just wanted out of the race. And he thought by leaving the workforce, it would bring him peace and happiness. But this didn't work either. He had no productive time. And so his idleness only ate away at his very existence. That was verse 5. Well, now we have the independent man. We had the industrious man, the idle man, and now we have the independent man in verses 7 and 8. And Solomon here meets a man who apparently has no family to speak of. If he has a wife, she's not mentioned, but we know for sure he had no heir, he had no brother or son, and apparently he doesn't have any friends either to share his success. All he has in life is his riches. And long after having enough to care for his needs, he keeps pushing and pushing and pushing for more. Now, you could understand that, right, if he had a family to take care of or maybe children he wanted to pass on his his, uh, money to, but he has no one. He doesn't have anyone. And so his only motivation for wanting more, we're told in our text, is his unsatisfied eye. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, says verse 8. One one commentator calls him the compulsive moneymaker. He just can't stop. You think of a man like Ebenezer Scrooge and Charles Dickens at Christmas Carol. He was sad. He was lonely. All he had was his riches until, of course, he met Tiny Tim. But that's a story for another time. You could think of the billionaire, Howard Hughes, uh, who ended his days... As rich as he was, a chronic recluse haunted by his fears of disease. In either case, men like that are the man that Solomon is describing. What he does is he surrenders his life to this mere craving that he has, this endless process of of feeding it day after day. He keeps working away from dawn until dark. For what purpose? What purpose? No matter what he gained, he had no one to share it with. That's what we find here. And the saddest thing of all in in this man's life is he never stopped long enough to ask the question, look at verse 8, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? He never stopped to ask what he was doing with his life. Socrates said the unexamined life is not worth living, and this independent man never stopped to examine his life, to break away from all his work, to raise this money from his toil, to ask the important question. He didn't ask that foundational question, what am I doing this for? Why am I doing this? What is the end game? What is my goal? What is the purpose of it all? And so Solomon looks at this man's unexamined life, and he saw what? He saw vanity. He saw unhappiness. 
His possessions could never satisfy his soul, and he didn't even have anyone to share them with. So his life, Solomon says, is futile. It is useless, and it'll actually end in unhappiness. And so that's the picture in verses 7 and 8. It's a picture of loneliness, a picture of lonely greed. And now, though, we contrast that picture of loneliness, of lonely greed, with that of a blessed fellowship. And that's what we find in verses 9 to 12. Look there. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone if, when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. And then he says, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. See, Solomon's visit with that lonely, greedy man and taking a look at that rich man's life causes him to kind of reflect And it causes them to reflect upon the importance of companionship. And and as he did that, he had a proverb, verse 9, two are better than one. Someone with a companion is better than the one, like that independent man in verses 7 and 8, because they have a good reward for their toil. They can get more done and get a better return for their efforts because there are two. And most importantly... They can share the fruits of their labor with their companion. But there's more to this than simply sharing the fruits of their labor. Solomon gives us three illustrations here of how two people as partners can help each other. And so it's just a practical illustration. First, verse 10, for if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Now, this is uh, reflecting on the traveling in the Middle East. It wasn't easy. Roads and paths in Palestine were not paved. They, they weren't even level. You ever, you ever drive your car through the city streets of Philadelphia? And, and you're worried you're just going to fall into a pothole? Um, that, well, this is even worse. Um, there were many hidden rocks in the fields, and, and it wasn't uncommon for people to fall into a, a, a hidden pit. There were several pits along the pass. We're told in Genesis chapter 14 that as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, what happened to them? Some fell into pits. And so traveling wasn't easy, and it was very dangerous. At night, there's no lamps. They didn't have their flashlights to guide them. And so it was vitally important and wonderful to have a friend who can help you if, if you were to fall into one of those pits, if you were to stumble. And so two, Solomon says, are better than one because a companion can provide assistance. That's the first illustration. Second, verse 11. Again, if two lie together, they can keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? Now, some believe this may refer to marriage. Uh, But I actually think it's just continuing on the same uh, storyline here of the last illustration. It's talking about travelers. They often spent the night outdoors. Jacob, when he fled from Esau, traveled until the sunset and had then, then slept outdoors. That was a common practice. But what do you do when it gets cold on those frigid nights? How do you keep yourself warm? They didn't have sleeping bags. They didn't have blankets. They only had their cloak. 
in the desert, and the desert got very cold at night. And so what they would do? Well, two people would sleep back to back and share their cloaks and body heat to keep warm. And so two are better than one because a companion can provide warmth or comfort. Third illustration. It's found in verse 12. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. Now, again, this is taken from the dangers of travel. And when, when you got away from the towns and the cities, there was danger of robbers and thieves who roam the countryside. And so two are better than one because there's safety in numbers. A, a companion can provide defense for you. And, and so it, you're in a better chance. You have a better chance of surviving. Um, why? Well, two can beat one. So having a companion is better because why? There's assistance, verse 10. There's warmth, verse 11. There's safety, verse 12. Or to put it differently, one commentator said, two are better than one when it comes to work, when it comes to walking, when it comes to warmth, and when it comes to warfare. Two are better than one. The point being, do not underestimate the importance of relationships. Do not underestimate the importance of friendship. Do not underestimate the importance of companionship. Well, Solomon sums it all up in his message at the end of verse 12 with another proverb now. The first proverb was what? Two are better than one. And now he writes, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. And by adding a, a third strand to this cord, Solomon is making a point that for everything from work, to warfare, three people are even better than two. He started with the number one, verse eight. He went to the number two in verse nine, and then he closed with the number three in verse 12. And the increase in numbers here in his writing is significant. It's the law of larger numbers. The more companions, the better we are. That's the idea. Other than in marriage, says Phil Riken, when a third companion is an intruder, and he said, unless, of course, you're talking about a family with children, then a third would be a blessing. But when he, besides that, apart from marriage, in every other way, in the most dangerous and difficult situations we face, three people are stronger than two. Two is better than one. Better is companionship. That's the point he's making. See, if we are going, beloved, to, to live life the way God would have us live, we need more than contentment. We need that. We saw that the other week. We learned that. But we also need companionship. We need to learn that we also need one another. And when you think of what Solomon has said, particularly the problems that he discusses in the book that people face, the problem of injustice, the problem of oppression, the problem of poverty, the problem of loneliness, uh, one of the greatest gifts God gives when we have to face those problems is, is the gift of companions. It's others that can help us through that. We need each other. And see, this is just as true when it comes to the spiritual. It's true when it comes to the, the, the regular mundane days of life and relationships in our world, but it's also true of the spiritual. It's true of our spiritual work, our spiritual walk, our spiritual warfare. Two are better than one when it comes to the work of ministry. What does Scripture say? Iron sharpens iron. 
Two are better than one when it comes to our spiritual walk. When our brother and sister stumbles and falls, Paul says, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. You need others in the Christian walk. How grateful we should be for Christian friends when we are going through a difficult time to help us walk that narrow path, to to avoid those pits, those pitfalls, to, to help pull us up out of an emotional hole that we found ourselves in, or even a spiritual hole we fall into. Who, who people who can lift us up with words of encouragement when we stumble or fall. Two are better than one. Well, two are better than one when it comes to spiritual warfare. What does Scripture say? It says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. See, the world that we live in is full of temptations, the desires of the eye, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, 1 John says. And we also learn from Peter that Satan is prowling around like a lion seeking to devour us. And so when it comes to facing these spiritual dangers... We shouldn't do it alone. Two are better than one. See, if we live close to other believers, there is always someone to stand for us, to fight the good fight with us, to cover us, to protect us. That's what the prayer and care teams are all about. That point right there. So you don't have to go it alone. That we, that we as brothers and sisters lift each other up and pray for one another. And so two is better than one in our walk, our spiritual walk, our, our spiritual work, our spiritual warfare. It's also true that two are better than one when it comes to spiritual warmth. Phil Riken writes, there is spiritual warmth in going through life with other believers. It's easy to grow cold in Christian life, to become numb to the work of God, and eventually to freeze almost to spiritual death. But when we are growing cold, the heat of another Christian can warm us up. The prayer of an elder or deacon, the verse that a friend shares from Scripture, an exhortation to turn our hearts back to God, there are some of the sparks that God uses to keep the spiritual fire burning. And so two are better than one when it comes to spiritual warmth. And so in all these ways, two are better than one. Better is companionship. And so it's no surprise if that's true, if Solomon is right, if the Scripture is speaking truth, why the Scripture itself exhorts us over and over again, love one another, care for one another, bear one another's burdens, build one another up, exhort one another, pray for one another, offer hospitality to one another, one another, one another, one another. We can never do it alone. Confess your sins to one another. See, we were created for relationship. We were created for companionship. We were never meant to go it alone. And that's been the case even prior to the fall. In fact, we discover it most of all right at the fall. Remember, though, before the fall, before God created, he begins in day one. He, he saw the dry land and greater seas, and he said, it is good, verse 10. He said, it was good. The trees are created and plants. It was good, verse 12. He separated the light from the darkness. It was good, he said, verse 18. He created all the living creatures. We know the story. And move in the sea and the air. And he saw them and said what? It was good, verse 21. 
He saw the beasts of the earth that he created, everything that creeps on the ground, and he said, it was good, verse 25. Then he created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female. He created them, verse 27. God blessed them. He said to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then we read, God saw everything he made, and behold, it was very good. It was 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 very good. But then we come to chapter 2. And chapter 2 of Genesis restates the creation of man and woman. And so after hearing it was good, it was good, it was very good, we come to verse 18 of chapter 2, and all of a sudden we read, it was not good. It was not good. Something was missing. Something wasn't right. The Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. You have all creation to enjoy. That is good. He had the garden to cultivate and work. That is good. He had God to walk with and talk with. That is very good. But without a human companion, that is not good. And if that was true before the fall, if that was true then, how much more is it true after the fall? When isolation is commonplace... See, when you look at the story of the fall, it's the story of what? It's the story of separation. It's the story of isolation. It's the story of loneliness due to sin. And a man and woman had each other, and they had God. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. And, uh, but sin broke it. And they, what do they do? What do they do? They cover themselves. And, and you read that, and you say, it's not, it's not making a fashion statement. It's not talking about the clothes at a time. The idea is they're hiding themselves. They're seeking to hide their true identities now. They're ashamed, and they're hiding from each other, and they're hiding from God, and so now they're isolated from one another, and they begin the blame game, and they had no one to turn to for help. Work becomes a burden. They had no one to walk with, no one to keep them warm, so to speak. And they're at war with one another, and ultimately they're at war with God. That is the fruit of sin. And ever since that time, we live with that tension. We live with that tension. We desire companionship. We desire that intimacy. All the while, we want to hide our true identities from others because we're ashamed. And so we feel alone. That's the reality of the world, especially in our day today where the only interaction people seem to have most of the time, at least in the younger generations, is social. They're friends virtually. And it provides something, but it doesn't provide what they're longing for. Now, I, I'm not sure where I got this story, but it was written, a testimony, about how, many, how, how people in our world feel. It's written by a middle-aged lady, and it's entitled, I Am Lonely. This is what she says. My loneliness is killing me inside. I'm so lonely, it makes me depressed. I hardly have any friends, and sometimes I wonder, what is the point of living? Is there something wrong with me? Am I such a dislikable person? I really don't understand. I'm warm, caring, talkative, friendly, and I'm well-educated with an interesting life. 
yet no one seems interested in getting to know me and socializing with me. I'm never invited to dinners, parties, weddings, or anything. I used to have lots of friends in high school and college, but gradually they have all slipped away despite my efforts to stay in contact. I don't understand what has changed. I'm still the bubbly person I always was. Why don't they care about me anymore? The older I get, the harder it is to make new friends. No matter how much I make an effort to be sociable, it never results in long-lasting friendships. I don't look forward to weekends anymore because I often don't have anyone to go out with. My phone sometimes doesn't ring for days. I prefer to be at work because at least I have people to talk to there. How pathic is that? Someone once said that loneliness is the worst form of poverty, and they got that right. I don't know what to do anymore. All I know is that I am happy when I'm socializing with people, part of a group, feeling loved and respected. But this hasn't been the case for years now. I'm not enjoying my life much at all. I'm so miserable. I wish this would end. Do you hear what she's saying? She's saying, life lived alone is vanity. Life lived in isolation is empty. Life lived in separation is a chasing after the wind. And see, that is how many people go through life. They feel isolated. They feel alone. Maybe you feel that you can be in a crowded room, as the saying goes, and still feel alone. So what is a person to do? Well, you know where this is heading. I'm not going to dazzle you with some philosophical insight. The answer is simple. The answer is looking to Christ. Why? Because, see, in Jesus Christ, we're reconciled to God. And in Jesus Christ, we find someone who knows us intimately, who knows those things we're hiding from others, and yet chooses to pursue us anyway out of his love. And so through Christ, we receive the strength we need because of his love to pursue relationships with others. See, we were never meant to live alone, and Christ makes it possible for us to at least get a taste of life before the fall. He reverses all its devastating effects, and now we're free to be our true selves because, as I said, he knows us completely, and there's no reason to hide from him. And as very good as that is, it's not all that Christ provides. See, he, he, he provides us salvation, but he also provides us the church. As I was emphasizing earlier, we have one another, and we shouldn't take it for granted. We were created to relate to one another, not just God, me, and the Bible in my quiet time, but for one another. Christ restored that. And so that threefold cord can never be broken. Christ, his church, and you if you're a believer. But let me say, I'll close with this. Everyone needs a friend. Everyone does. Jesus says in John 15, greater love has no one than this and someone laid down his life for his friends. That's great love. That is exactly what Jesus did. 
He laid down his life for us. You are my friends, he goes on to say, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, yes, Jesus lived for you. Yes, he died for you. Yes, he rose from the grave for you. And yes, he has brought you into his church, but he has also called you friend. The creator and sustainer of the universe calls you friend. He will always have your back. He will always love you. Jesus is the friend we all need. One preacher put it this way. Two really are better than one when one of the two is the best one of all. And the best one of all is Jesus. And so let me ask, if you're struggling with loneliness or if you're not, in either case, have you become Jesus' friend by putting your trust in him? Have you looked to Christ? Have you looked to him, looked to his death and his resurrection by faith? Have you trust that he paid the price for your sin and now that separation you experience with God, he can reconcile you through him? And that through him, he brings you into the family of God. And through him, you will never, ever, ever be alone again. That's the promise. Christ his church, and you. And even if all the world were abandoning you, even if the church were not to play the part of the church, he will be your companion for all eternity. That is the promise. He promises you that he will be that kind of friend. And so don't delay. You no longer need to be alone. Let's pray. Our great God and our Heavenly Father, we thank you for that promise. But how hard it is to trust in Christ alone in the midst of the misery that we sometimes feel as we're isolated from those around us and we feel lonely here on earth and it overcomes us. And so we pray, Lord, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would open up our hearts to see the beauty of the friendship that we have in Jesus Christ so that we can indeed pursue others and have companionship here on earth. We pray, Lord, you would keep us from trying to go it alone. In Jesus' name, amen.